Good afternoon and welcome to OCTALK, the show dedicated to helping home health and hospice providers run compliant and successful agencies. OCTALK aims to bring you closer to reliable experts in home health and hospice and to share the latest news and information from the industry and from the Association of Home Care Coding and Compliance. I'm Jan Milliman, Director for OCK, and I'm happy to be hosting today's program. This afternoon, we're sharing a new tool that will help determine, well, that will help with determining when it is appropriate to continue care versus prepare to discharge a patient. And this tool was developed by OCK's Documentation Integrity Committee. And now I'd like to introduce our industry guests for this episode. We have Ashley Benson, RN, COQS, CHHCM, HCSD, LSSGB, Home Health and Hospice Consultant with us on the call today. Ashley began her career in home health as a field nurse, quickly working her way up to supervisor, regional and director roles. In these roles, she gained valuable insight into the clinical and operational challenges that home health agencies face every day. She has extensive knowledge in OASIS, coding, regulatory compliance, and coffee activities. And we also have April Swafford, RN, BSN, COSC, HCSD, HCSH, HCSO, QA Manager with Symmetry Healthcare Consulting with us today. April has more than 20 years of experience in home health, and she's worked in roles as a case manager, clinical manager, and leader of a cardiopulmonary specialty program. As QA Manager for Symmetry, April monitors the overall quality of coding, OASIS, and plan of care reviews completed by both full-time and contract auditors. Thanks for joining us today, Ashley and April. Thank you, Jan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Sure. All right, let's kick things off with an audience poll. Our question for you today is how does your agency determine if a patient is appropriate for discharge? And our answer options are the clinician determines readiness, we wait for orders from the provider to discharge, we discharge at the end of the ordered frequency, there's collaboration with the team during a case conference or other. And if you choose other, please go ahead and share what your process is in the chat pane so we can discuss that when we look at the uh, responses a little later in the call. Folks are still voting, so I'm just going to give it another couple of seconds to give everyone a chance to get their answers in. I think it'll be interesting to see um, what the processes are. Um, it sort of dovetails with looking at our tool um, that hopefully will be helpful with these processes. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll and we will get ready for um, going through our discussion and sharing our tool with you today. Listeners, if you have any questions for our panelists today, please go ahead and ask them in the chat pane and we'll get to as many of them as we can. All right, pardon me, I wanna share our 
tool. So this is the tool that the OCK Documentation Integrity Committee put together. Um, it's a decision tree and I wanted to give you the big picture and then I'm going to zoom in a little bit. And Ashley, can you start us off with a kind of an overview of this tool and why the committee thought it would be helpful? Um, absolutely, Jan. Thank you. So with the end of end of the pandemic um, came the resumption of medical reviews and over the last couple of years agencies have felt the increased burden of ADRs, TPEs, RCD um, and other medical review audits. Um, agencies also face the confusion um, after the implementation of the 30-day billing period versus you know the, the normal 60-day billing episodes that we were all became accustomed to. So after we completed the tools for the face-to-face -to -face requirements um, the documentation felt that um, the tech documentation committee felt that um, we needed to develop a tool for the other conditions that a patient must meet in order to qualify for those home health services. So essentially, with this tool, the appropriateness for continuing care or discharge, agencies can use this tool at any time um, during the patient's care to determine if they meet the conditions under Medicare to continue the services. Um, they will go through each one of the criteria, yes, no. Um, if they get to one of those no answers, they really need to discuss um, with the physician, the patient, the care team, what that appropriateness is, or a yes answer um, hopefully gets us to the end where we can continue to provide care for the patients. Um, it's just a tool, a guide um, based directly off of Chapter 7, um, and we felt that this would really benefit agencies kind of take this into case conference or whatever um, their processes were to kind of supplement um, those discussions they were having with their care team. Great. Thanks, Ashley. I'm going to zoom in a little bit so we can see these um, different steps as we walk through the tool. And Ashley, you want to start us off with that first um, step in the in the decision tree? Absolutely. So at any time during care, um, whether it's after a 30-day billing period, 60-day episodes, your three episodes in, you need to make sure those, that initial certification, all of those requirements were met. So do you have a good face-to-face? -face? That, that's that's one of the, if, I mean, is the top reason for denial for medical review. So is the face-to-face -face solid? Is it going to um, stand up to any kind of scrutiny under medical review? Is the patient homebound at start of care or at the initial certification? Were they under the care of the provider and did they meet that initial skilled need? If the initial certification requirements are not met, then April is going to tell you really what you need to do. All right, so if those initial certification requirements, such as an appropriate face-to-face, -face, your homebound status is not, <clears throat> is not well documented or the patient is not homebound, um, they're under the care of a provider or they don't have a skilled need, uh, whether you're talking about your start of care episode or like Ashley said, you're four episodes in, you risk the entire length of the stay being denied under medical review. Uh, if that is the case and you're reviewing a chart and the clinician says, hey, I think we can continue this patient again and you look at that chart uh, and you realize that no, they really they really don't have a skilled care, putting a Band-Aid on a, a skin tear on a hand, it's, is not skilled care, then what you need to do um, is that clinician needs to start preparing that patient for discharge. Uh, you would also want to look at, did they have an additional payer or maybe they want to self-pay to continue whatever care that their your facility, I mean, sorry, your agency's providing. 
Absolutely. So when you're discussing this during case conference or at any time during that care options, if that initial certification requirements have been met, then you're going to ask that next question. Um, does the patient continue to meet homebound requirements? In this, you need to make sure the documentation throughout all the disciplines, all of the episodes supports that that patient is homebound. Um, April, do you want to discuss what if they get to that no answer, what they need to do? I will, Ashley. If for some reason you find that the patient's homebound requirements are not met, again, just like we talked about in the in the yellow box above, you risk either that starter care episode or multiple episodes in addition to the starter care episode being denied. Now, remember that you cannot make a patient homebound just so that you can see them. So uh, we want to make sure that our clinicians understand how to document that homebound status. Also know that you can use your documentation, uh, so for example, a PT narrative, I've seen people use their M1800s from their OASIS to kind of help shore up, I guess, uh, that homebound documentation, but your documentation alone cannot be used to meet that homebound requirement status. Absolutely, it has to be a consistent picture throughout. Um, so if you do get to that yes answer, um, then you're going to ask the next question. Does the patient have an ongoing skilled need? So for nursing services, you're looking at those direct hands-on skill, wound care, catheter care, IM or IV administration, tube feedings, um, um, ostomy aspiration, tracheostomy aspiration. Um, those would be those direct hands-on, and that's on an all-inclusive list, but those are the, the big ones that we, that we work with. Um, I'm putting hands on the patient. It's a skill that um, requires the skills of a nurse um, in order to carry out. You also have the observation and assessment of the patient. This is typically a short-term duration. Um, we'll discuss that here in just a minute. Additional guidance to consider on what, what it looks like for those observation and assessment patients. Um, under nursing services, you also have the management and evaluation of a patient care plan. And that's typically not one that you see routinely, but there are agencies who do carry out those services as well. And the last one that's in the Medicare Chapter 7 listed is teaching and training activities. So the patient or caregiver requires um, teaching on um, skills or knowledge essential to prevent any kind of injury or additional illness um, based on their, their condition or diagnoses. And then for therapy services, the skills that you have are going to be those restorative care plans or those maintenance care plans. April, do you want to so talk about what the non-skilled? Sure. If we look at uh, our what we're doing for that patient and we realize that, ooh, maybe, maybe this is not a skilled service. Uh, like Ashley said, it's going to come directly from Chapter 7. You can also go to Chapter 10 of your Medicare billing manual. Uh, and get some further guidance in there on what is skilled versus what is not skilled and very specific guidance on things such as B12 injections, what documentation you would have to have from your provider to keep that patient ongoing with B12 injections. So um, if you are thinking maybe you don't have a skilled need again, you're putting yourself at risk for denial, whether it be on that starter care episode or multiple episodes, uh, if that's the case and we want to prepare that patient for discharge, look at our additional payer sources they may have. Are those self-pay options? <clears throat> so some things, and I can tell you, Ashley and I both can tell you, is that we see people, um, agencies, research patients for these very things right here that are not considered 
<clears throat> skilled services. So administration of oral, eye, or topical medications. Um, med and, and let me say on that, when I'm looking at oral, eye, or topical medications, and some of these others, if <clears throat> Medicare, <laughs> I hate to say it this way, Medicare doesn't care if that patient doesn't have a caregiver. If they are not receiving a skilled service based on what Medicare defines as a skilled service, they're not gonna pay you for it. So that's why you wanna be cautious on taking patients that may not have a skilled service or don't have a caregiver. <clears throat> and you wanna make sure that you get your social worker involved if you have caregiver issues. So. Uh, medication planning setup. Now, remember that we're looking at this too, mostly for Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, Medicaid Advantage. You will see sometimes a VA payer that will pay for Medicare planning setup and some of these other things. But based on what Medicare defines as the skill, med planner setup is not an ongoing skill. Now, you may have that patient for a start of care episode and you teach them their medicines and you teach that caregiver or that family <clears throat> excuse me, y'all, how to set that planner up, what those medicines are, but they're not going to pay you just to set that pill planner up. Uh, finger stick INRs, remember, venipuncture, those went out a long time ago as a skilled service for help for home health, if that's all you're doing. Uh, ostomy care without complications, and then simple dressing changes. And again, Medicare doesn't care if the patient and, and it's terrible to say if the patient can't see where well, they don't have a caregiver. If it's a simple dress and change, a Band-Aid on an elbow, Medicare is not going to pay you to keep going on and on and on to see that patient. Now, while we're here, uh, if it's okay with Ashley, let's go ahead and look at additional guidance to consider, referencing back to the ongoing skilled need that Ashley covered. We don't see a lot of, pay, or I don't see a lot of people documenting that they're seeing a patient for observation and assessment. Know that observation is a skill, observation and assessment is a skill defined by Medicare, uh, and those skilled observation services may be covered for three weeks or as long as there is a reasonable potential for such. Uh, for a complication or a further acute episode or exacerbation. A significant change could include an ER visit and or hospitalization, new or exacerbated conditions, fall with a significant injury, a decline in functional or mental status, a new or changed medication, abnormal vital signs, abnormal lab or imaging, and caregiver or living situation change. Now. When we talk about observation and assessment, if I have a patient, for example, I see them, I'm getting down to the end of my episode, it's 14 days out from the end of my episode, they're diagnosed with a UTI, they put them on an antibiotic for five days. Can I restart that patient for observation and assessment and teaching on that? Yes, I can. Do I want to carry them out for a full nine weeks on that, which something that occurred 14 days before my episode even ended, I probably don't. And Medicare's probably not gonna wanna pay you for that. That would be a good example of when you would research that patient three weeks for observation and assessment and teaching on a UTI. That's not something you need to drag out for nine weeks. Um, decline in their function, of course, you know, we could, we could do observation assessment for that. Have they already had therapy? Do we need to bring therapy in? So <clears throat> when you look at these, 
and we say three weeks, if all I'm doing is observation and assessment, then I'm pretty much limited to that three week span. But if I have some ongoing education, if I have a new caregiver, if I have a new need developed during that time, then I may go longer. But no, if I'm just doing observation and assessment, that's pretty much a three week span per Medicare. Teaching and training, visits may be reasonable and necessary where the teaching or training is appropriate to the patient's functional loss, illness, or injury, where it becomes apparent that the patient, family, or caregiver will not or are not able to be trained, Medicare is not going to pay you to do further teaching and training. It is not going to be reasonable and necessary. Uh, retraining and teach, tongue tied today, I'm sorry. Retraining and reteaching may be considered reasonable and necessary where there is a change in a procedure or if care is not being delivered appropriately, or if there's a change in the patient condition. Documentation should always support while the reteaching or retraining is required and the patient and caregiver responses. What we see uh, many times is we start that patient on, we're doing teaching and assessment, everything we taught, maybe it's just hypertension. We've taught everything about hypertension, patient caregivers verbalized understanding on every note that we read. Well, then we get to research and yeah, we're gonna research this patient for nine more weeks for hypertension teaching is what's on our 60 day summary. Well, I've already documented, I've taught them everything and they verbalized and understood it. So my documentation, just like Ashley said, it all has to go together. If I say, yes, I've done all this teaching, they understand it's all done, then I don't have a reason to research this patient at that point. Uh, so you wanna make sure that your documentation, whether it be observation and assessment, teaching and training, that your documentation overall supports that. You also want to be very cognizant, as the example says, um, if it becomes apparent that they're not able to understand it, or they're just not going to do it, Medicare's not going to let you continue to go. What I was always taught, you teach it, you reteach, you retrain, and then maybe reteach one more time. And that's pretty much your limit. If they don't understand it or are not complying by then, then you, there's really no need for you to keep going. Again, even if I have those little old ladies that have dementia, that's where you want a caregiver in there. That's where you want your social worker. Medicare doesn't care that they have dementia and forget what you teach them. They're not going to continue to pay you for that. That was kind of depressing, wasn't it? Now it's Ashley's turn. Pump us back up. I'll do my best. I did want to touch on one thing as far as for observation, assessment, and vital signs. Um, something to kind of to keep in mind and what as well is um, if there's fluctuating signs and symptoms that are a part of a long-standing pattern of a patient's condition. If there's no required um, change in that patient's treatment plan, medications, or prescribed treatment, that that's not going to be considered skill and observation assessment of that patient. If they, um, you know, for instance, if they have fluctuating um, weights and the provider the provider is not changing any um, any kind of medications. There are going to be those patients who 
three or four pounds, five or six pounds is nothing. Um, when you look at over the years, I mean, their, their weights are consistent throughout the years um, and it doesn't cause any kind of hospitalizations or or even um, the need for additional Lasix or, or different uh, additional diuretics, then um, that's not gonna be considered skill. It's, it's almost kind of a, a normal abnormal for that patient and um, it's not gonna need the observation assessment for those patients. Um, for teaching and training activities, um, April touched on this a little bit. If the patient does have dementia, a diagnosis, or a diagnosis of a cognitive impairment, the teaching really should be directed at the caregiver. Um, we all know that dementia um, or, you know, diagnosis of dementia has many different levels of, you know, the patient is able to understand or not understand. And so you really have to make sure that you do a good job documenting and answering those OASIS items of what their cognitive um, and cognitive understanding is um, so that the documentation throughout the episode, if there's not a decline, it's all consistent throughout um, and that you are teaching the appropriate person um, and they, they are able to understand it. Um, so, okay. Go ahead. Go, going back to your, you're talking about the OASIS, um, and I don't know about you, but sometimes we'll see this, patients alert and oriented times three, um, they're in 1700 items, they don't have any problems, uh, their BIMS is 15, but then I go back and document in my narrative that the patient's got some cognitive impairment or they're confused. So you want to make sure, again, and I know it's very hard sometimes because we do a lot of quote unquote, it's still paperwork, even if it's on a computer, uh, but it all has to be consistent and it all has to paint the same picture. Um, absolutely. And, and even one more step further, it needs to be consistent throughout the disciplines. Um, if the patient, yeah. it, granted, at start of care, the patient um, is doing fine, great, you know, nurse documents, no issues, and then therapy goes out the next day and the patient's so it has severe pain and, and has all the other things go on. So yes, things fluctuate, but that's when that collaboration, while these, while this, you know, this care coordination is so, so imperative is so that the documentation is consistent, that everybody knows what's going on with that patient. Um, you know, and even between disciplines that, you know, from therapy to PT to OT to ST, um, everybody needs to know um, and have a consistent picture and paint a consistent picture of the same patient. Um, you know, as far as homebound status, I've, I've seen several um, cases denied where therapy or PT um, is saying the patient's able to ambulate this amount of distance, but nursing is in and saying they, yeah, completely different story. They're not able to ambulate um, due to this. And so that's, you know, when, when that comes into question, the, that skilled need and everything else also comes into question. And, and then you're, you're going to get yourself in hot water, water when it comes to that medical review. But if your documentation is consistent and um, everything from the initial certification, the homebound status, the skilled need, if you get answers, yes, 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 all the way down, um, down to that last blue box at the bottom, it says if all conditions are met, continued care may be appropriate. And we put that may in there because every patient's different, every situation's different. You know, the patient could be homebound. The patient could have an initial certification. They may have nursing services. Um, they may have a wound, but we've discharged patients with wounds before if, if you know, um, for cause or, you know, the patient really doesn't, the patient has a skilled caregiver, care, skilled, you know, caregiver in the home, you know, their daughter's a nurse and lives with them and takes care of it. So it may not be appropriate to continue services because they have somebody 
willing to care for them um, in their home. You know, the, the goal is for home health is to keep them at home, right? To get that care at home. And if they're able to get that care, the same care that we can provide, then it may not be appropriate. Um, but it may be appropriate. We, there's lots of patients who don't have that um, support system set up. Um, but it's so vital to make sure that documentation in each visit, each discipline across the board supports that. Um, so that's all I have. I would just add uh, something that we don't see. I, I feel like, and of course I'm old school, been in it a long time, but a lot of times your narrative documentation is what's going to save you. So don't think just because you've clicked all the boxes, that's all there is to do. We want to make sure that we're doing some narrative documentation on those negatives that we're finding. So if you go in there and mama's more confused than she was when you saw her on Monday, make sure that you document that well in your narrative. So it's obvious to somebody that comes behind you and reads that note that there was a decline there from Monday to Wednesday or Thursday, whenever you saw her next. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ashley and April. I think this is gonna be such a helpful tool and that walkthrough was really nice to see how this all comes together. I wanna point out um, folks that there is a copy of this tool in the handouts section. And if you're an OCK member, you'll also be able to access at any time um, in the tools uh, section of the OCK website. And when you are using this, it has this nice little feature of linking you out to the guidance that um, gives you the details on each of these requirements. So in that first box, you'll see it's broken up to the different um, different items, face-to-face, -face, homebound, uh, under the care of a provider, skilled need, and then each of these blue squares down the side um, links you out to the pertinent guidance. So I love that the documentation committee is um, connecting that to the guidance um, in case people need to drill down and need to know where this comes from. So a uh, really nice feature of this tool. And I want to make sure to uh, thank all of the folks who helped to develop this tool. Um, and that's Ashley and April, both uh, played a big role in putting this tool together, as well as the other members of the ACT Documentation Integrity Committee, which include Elise Christensen, Christina Crumbly, Janan Griffin, Sharon Harder, Kelly Cavanaugh and Annette Lee. And we're so grateful for all the help that uh, these folks um, these folks gave us in developing this tool. And I did receive a question from uh, one of our listeners who's wondering if they can share this tool with their staff. And yes, please go ahead and, and share that tool. I hope it is helpful to you and your colleagues. And I also want to take a couple minutes and let you know what's new with OCK. Uh, this section of the call, we like to bring you up to date with things we're doing here at OCK. And I want to make sure you know that we have a webinar coming up in November, November 6th. It's the new Coders Survival Guide. And this is brought to you by members of the BAMC exam committee. And April is one of the folks that will be joining us for this uh, webinar. And we know that it's an area that folks um, 
struggle a little bit with moving from learning about diagnosis coding to actually working with the documentation in the real world. So we wanted to put together a webinar that kind of bridges some of that gap. And this call will have six great speakers and they'll each be sharing best practices for work as a home health coder. So whether you're considering a career in home health coding or you have a friend who keeps asking you about what it's like to work in home health coding, this webinar will give them a feel for the real world experience. There's a link in the handouts that you can follow to find out more about that. And before we leave today, I want to make sure we discuss our poll. So let me share those poll results. All right, so we asked you, how does your agency determine if a patient is appropriate for discharge? And it looks like the majority of folks uh, make that decision in collaboration during a team case, a team, uh, case conferences. And then we also had a little more than a third of folks who um, who's who work in a system where the clinician determines readiness. Panelists, any thoughts about those results? Is that in line with what you are seeing? I definitely believe the primary clinician needs to drive the conversation during case conference or with the other team members. Um, but as far as if there are multiple team members involved um, in the care, it needs to be a discussion. I think supervisors also need to take a role in um, in determining if it's appropriate for discharge, they need to understand what questions to ask the clinician, um, especially if they're saying this patient, well, really either way, if the patient says, if they're saying, oh, discharge, you know, if that's how you go, just discharge, okay, do they have a support system set in place? Have they had any medication changes? Have they had any recent infections? Have they had any recent falls? Um, asking those kind of questions, to prompt the clinician to really think about what's going on with this patient. Are they appropriate for discharge? Or, hey, no, they did have a fall last week. Or, no, they did have a medication change um, to maybe determine, hey, we need therapy or we need to continue services for, for a couple of more um, weeks to make sure that it was a one-time thing. Um, but, I mean, I could see, you know, why both were chosen, but that collaboration, if there's a team involved, um, is definitely going to give you, I believe, the best outcome for the patient. I, I agree with Ashley. I think having been in the field for a long time, and I think anybody that's been in the field will understand this, uh, as a single clinician, sometimes you have those patients and you think, if I have to go into that house one more time, I am pulling my hair or their hair out one. So as much as you try not to be biased by those things that you have, sometimes sometimes that's what drives you so having those conversations even if it's just a nursing case having that conversation with your clinical manager or whoever else in the office does that part um, will kind of help you settle back down and, and realize the need versus the aggravation that you may feel having to deal with the patient because it's very real and it's I mean none of us want to talk about it but I've had those patients too and I'd be like lord have mercy I'll be so glad when they're discharged well, even on the flip side, we all have had those patients that we just love and we want, you know, we want to keep forever. And so we kind of try and, and oh, no, they need more teaching or they whatever, you know, that they they really yeah. need us in the home. That, that's, you know, same flip side. We have those patients that we love that really probably need to be discharged um, or they they just want to aid every, every, you know, every week to come in, you know, so um, determining the collaboration or talking about the collaboration is really going to ensure 
what's appropriate um, during that care. Exactly. Thanks so much. Great points. All right, so let me just hide this poll and we will start wrapping things up today. I want to thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Oct Talk. Thanks to Ashley and April for the great information and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again on November 23rd when we'll be discussing the recent falls report from the OIG, the data it's based on and its potential impact on home health agencies. If you have any suggestions for future guests, topics, or ideas about the format of the show, you can always reach me at jmilliman at decisionhealth.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month. Take care, everyone.